Number 12, Psalms, first quarter, 2024. Daniel Duda. Welcome, Pinot family. We are continuing our study of the book of Psalms. Today's lesson titles Worship That Never Ends. Dr. Daniel Duda will be leading through the study and Karen Holford will be leading us in the opening prayer. Dearly beloved and gracious Father, we want to pause now in the swirling busyness of our lives and to settle our scattered senses and to quieten our distracted thoughts and focus on you. You are so many things to us. You are our creator and you're continually shaping us with your loving and creative hands. You're our father and you're smiling and holding out your arms to us as we learn to toddle through this world and you catch us gently when we stumble and fall and you're our shepherd. You lead us to quiet places with still waters along the pathways of our life. You're our comfort and guide through the darkest valleys and our joyful host through feasts and celebrations. You relate to us in 10,000 different ways. You are above us, under us, around us, and in us. And as we contemplate your loving character, we are filled with an awe that is beyond our human expression of words and songs. And we sense a deep peace flowing through our thoughts, a profound love wrapping us in warmth, delightful joy bubbling from our heart. And our response to all this wonder is to pause and praise you, not because you need our worship, but as we focus on all that you are to us, we will become more like you. And now as we wander deeper into this wonderland of worship, guided by your servant, Daniel, we pray that your Holy Spirit will weave our thoughts together into a deeper understanding of who you are. And may all who speak and all who listen be drawn closer to you. May we see you more clearly. May we follow you more nearly and love you more dearly day by day as we love you and worship you in thought and word and deed now and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Karen. That was truly a psalm. And thank you for taking time to think it through and prepare a prayer, which is meaningful. And all of us can say amen to. So a worship that never ends. Does it fill you with joy or with horror? Memory text says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Now, depending how musical you are, as long as you are singing in the shower and nobody else can sing you, that's okay because it's the expression of your emotions and your devotion. But if you are not very musical, probably somebody else is not going to be blessed if you are off tune and you don't have a musical ear. Because some people don't contribute to God's glory by singing. They contribute to God's glory by doing something else. Which, by the way, it explains why the music in the church most often is noisy. You know why? Because if it's loud, the fact that you are singing off tune is not heard. It disappears in the cacophony of the noise. And it allows you to sing in spite of the fact that you are not a trained or opera singer. Hopefully you have a worship team or an instrument that carries you so everybody can participate. But there is a reason why the intensity of the sound in the corporate worship is what it is. So that even those who are not very musical can participate without embarrassing themselves and everybody else around them. So what's your experience with worship? Which worship experience does this describe? Does it describe your local church? Does it describe a cathedral, a house church? Darla? I think sometimes we think of worship as a church service or always communal. But worship is a lifestyle. Do I worship with my life? And then this is how I can say that I want to worship all the time. Because my focus is God, 
what I can bring to my communal worship from my individual worship. It's more like practicing the presence of God, which I see as continual worship. Excellent, excellent. And in this sense, uh, this lesson is a continuation of the previous lesson. And the Zion is the metaphor for the temple and the presence of God. And in that sense, it's continuous in spite of the bad experiences that some people might have with the local worship. And it's not that inspiring or uplifting that they want to continue it one more minute than necessary. Iris? Let me just expand on that thought in that even those who don't know God are worshiping something. They may not be worshiping God. They may be worshiping money. They may be worshiping success. They may be worshiping whatever, their children. But they too sing a song about that which matters in their lives and inadvertently, maybe often unaware, they worship something. Yes, excellent. Thank you. And by the time we end the lesson, it should be clear from the book of Revelation that though it might not be obvious what's the object of your worship right now for every person, but by the end of times, the world will be divided into two groups, and it will be very obvious if the creator or a creation is the object of your worship, and that your worship either pulls you up or brings you down, ultimately. And that's why it matters what you worship. Aaron? There's a quote by John Piper. Can't recommend everything of his, but this one's pretty spot on. And it's, God is most satisfied when we are most satisfied in him. And I think that that ties into what Darla was saying about worship being our whole life. God intends for us to have a rich experience in life with the way he made it. He made waves for us to ride and tasty food for us to eat and people to have relationships and meaningful mutual enjoyment. And all of that brings joy to his heart. And done within the context of gratitude to God, it brings more meaning to all those things and those things can become an act of worship. Excellent. Thank you very much, Aaron. Very good and helpful remark. The lesson says in the second paragraph that Israel's primary calling to praise was to praise God and to witness about him to other nations because the Lord wants all the world to join his people in worship. Why is it that God wants everybody to join in worship? Is he some insecure person that he needs somebody constantly remind him how wonderful he is? Does he need psychopaths around him who say, oh, if it were not for you, what's the purpose of worship? Michael Bell. God does not need us to worship. We need to worship God. And we should be obedient to God, not because he's a ruthful ruler, but because it's good for us. That's why. The state of my health also depends upon the state of my spiritual health. And mental health and emotional health. And it gives you a certain perspective back to what Aris mentioned. You are going to end up worshiping something. And worshiping God gives you a proportionate picture of your place in the universe. So that you do not become too big, a little or more than a little God yourself, or too small. Remember when we talked about the covenant quarter, we said that all the nations have the story of creation or how the world came about. And usually they create a place of worship, a temple, and then they put a stature or representation of their God in that temple that they worship. But the Bible starts in Genesis 1 that God creates a temple and puts humans in the midst because he wants to collaborate with those humans so that they take care 
of the planet, of the environment, of the garden, and they get a perspective of who they are in the grand scheme of things. And so if you don't start from Genesis 1 and 2 pre-fall, you will get a distorted picture of worship. And this medieval idea that we are all going to sit on a cloud and play a harp and eat popcorn certainly does not appeal to 21st century people as a kind of eternity that you want to spend in a worship that never ends. Rita. You mentioned that we need to understand what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. And I think we need to remember that God worships us and his worship is of us is through his service to us, which is what his love is, is his service to us. And if we are to be like God, if we are imitators of God because we're his children, we've been adopted into his family and accept that position, then our worship of him will be manifest in our service to others. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Aaron, thank you. Part of worship is discovery. Because when you discover something beautiful about God, like a new understanding, like a light bulb moment, that inspires worship. And why do you think the universe is so big? I think that we're going to be finding new inspiration for worship, and it's just endless. You never reach the end of it. Yes, thank you, Olivius. I wonder if it's just maybe a little easier than we're trying to make it sound. You mentioned Genesis, and we were created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. And so we were built and designed to operate in a ecosystem, in a, an environment that God created, right? And so we basically said, oh, I want to do my own thing. I want to run my own universe. And so we're incompatible with the way we were designed and how life was designed to operate. And so this idea of endless worship is simply being compatible with the way God intended us to be how life is intended to work. And we will be worshiping for eternity because we operate how God wants us to operate. We are like him. We have compatible characters. I think the worship that we kind of think about today, going to church and stuff like this, that's like a ceremony. I think those are group meetings where we kind of get together and hang out with each other. That's not really what worship is. It's really about it being an imitator of our creator and living in the environment and the principles and methods that he's outlined for life to operate. Yes, thank you. So this is important that when we speak about worship, we usually mean music. Remember the worship wars? Or we mean singing. Now, singing definitely is one of the expressions of worship, but there is more to worship than just singing. And so that's one of the problems when we speak about worship, that we narrow it down to something. And then we have the discussion, what kind of music is appropriate and part of worship? And you always got the experts who tell you what kind of music God can listen to and he can't listen to, what kind of sauce God likes on his spaghetti, and which music is unacceptable to him. Part of the problem is that when it comes to music, just like with football, everybody's an expert. Everybody knows what kind of worship is acceptable to God. But Henry put in the chat, Old English, it's about worship. So worship is intentional turning to God and seeing all the greatness and goodness and glory and value that belongs to him rightfully. So seeing him in that context. So 
Let's go to Psalm 134. I'm sure you know that Psalm 119 is the longest in the Bible. We mentioned that when we talked about acrostic psalms that have all the lines or verses start with the same letter. And you know that 117 is the shortest one, but this one is only three verses. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. So the praise should ascend to God in the morning. The praise should ascend to God in the noon. And this is about the praise in the night. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Now, remember the structure of the worship in Israel is that there is a temple, which after David, as we said in the previous lesson, was not always in Jerusalem, was in at least three other places before. And of course, after the division of the kingdom, the northern kingdom sets up their own worship place, but the Bible frowns upon it because of the centrality of the worship. So it doesn't have anything positive to say. And all the northern kings will be the ones who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord because of the worship which is not centered in Jerusalem. But people live far away from the temple, from Dan to Beersheba. It's a long journey. And that's why every morning there is a perpetual sacrifice and every evening offered. And wherever you are, you only go to Jerusalem three times per year, but you pay the tax, temple tax. Remember in the Gospels in Matthew, there is a discussion whether Jesus is paying the temple tax. This is not the income tax that you pay to Caesar. This is the temple tax. That's the contribution so that they can buy the oil and the lamps for keeping the services going. But there you live in Dan in the north. But you know, this morning, a sacrifice is offered on my behalf at the temple. You know, tonight, a sacrifice is offered on my behalf at the temple. And that's why, come, bless the Lord, you, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. And how do they bless the Lord? Usually the Lord blesses us, but there are instances where the Bible uses the bless with God as an object. In verse 2, by lifting up your hands, the holy place. Michael. In the temple, there was the holy of holies, the holy place in the temple. That's where God resided. Where did they get the idea? Where did that come from? The idea that the sanctuary is divided into two or three parts, the outer court, the holy and the most holy place. Is that the question, Michael? No, the idea that God resides in the holiest place in the temple. A monotheistic God that exists everywhere, how did he get located within the Holy of Holies? If you read Exodus and Leviticus, when God asks people to build the sanctuary so that he can dwell in their midst, you get this representation that tells you how God deals with the problem of sin. So there is an outward court where people are gathered, then there is the wide gate that people enter. The first thing is that they are encountered is the altar, which conveys the message of acceptance. Remember we said that the temple in the New Testament is the community where everybody is welcome. So the message of the altar is, you are accepted, you are my son, you are my daughter, I accept you. Your sins are not a barrier between you and me. So that's the message is clearly conveyed. And then you have the holy place where you have certain furniture that is supposed to convey how God deals with the power of sin because forgiveness deals with the problem of guilt but doesn't 
deal with the endless cycle, sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness, sooner or later brings people to ask, is that all that God has to offer? And that's why the blood travels further and shows that, no, God has more to offer. He can bring the power over the sin and the power of sin can be broken in your life and how God does it through the feeding and lighting and the bread and the light and the prayers and the incense which are there and then you have the most holy place where the shekinah the presence the glory of god resides and you have the box of covenant etc so this gives the old testament background to this and that's why for example because the most holy place is a cube you know all three dimensions are the same when the book of revelation speaks about new jerusalem it says that its length width and height is the same so if you suffer from vertigo and you take john 14 that there are many mansions in heaven and you imagine that you will be assigned a mansion on the floor 14758 now you are going to suffer from sickness when you look out of the window of your heavenly mansion but that's not what it wants to say it just wants to say it's the most holy place it's the place of god's presence and doesn't want to tell you how tall are the buildings in new jerusalem so that's how the bible thinking works so let's go back to this lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the lord terry can you read for us first timothy 2 8 i desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting up holy hands without anger or argument and let's add verse 9 also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. I don't know from which church tradition you come from, but depending on certain denominational traditions, there would be a lot to say about verses 9, 10, and 11. Let a woman learn in silence and full submission. Verse 12, because I do not permit women to teach or to have authority over men. She's supposed to keep silent. So people will have a lot to say about verses 9 to 12. Yet, verse 8 in the New Testament, Paul says, I desire that in every place people should pray lifting up holy hands. And that goes back also then to what Darla mentioned to us, that the life needs to correspond, the whole life is worship, that if there is quarreling, as some translations translate, in this one that Terry read, new revised standard version, it's quarreling, it's an argument that if there is no correspondence with lifestyle, then the form does not have much value. It's interesting that in those traditions who have very literal understanding of verses 9 to 12, they have very symbolic understanding of verse 8. And so if you incorporate worship, start raising your hands, you will be considered charismatic and out of place. But verse 8 is equally important as verse 9. Any comments on lifting up your hands in the sanctuary? Do you see pastors raising their hands as a part of worship? What is he talking about? Darla? When you look at the tabernacle in the desert and the cleansing, is the lifting up the hands a sign of cleansing? Like I have accepted the cleansing of God and my surrender. And I have clean hands and I surrender to God. Yes. And in spirituality, we often tell people how much open hands help people experience that God is going to give me something. Very often we are taught that we are to put the hands together, but closed hands do not create a posture 
and it's a well-known law that your posture has influence on your mindset and of course in worship wars you have endless discussions about what's the appropriate posture of the bible interestingly enough solomon during the inauguration of the temple is lying on the floor i haven't seen many arguing that that's the appropriate i have seen people who divided churches that because if you don't kneel for every prayer then it doesn't count. It's not going to rise to heaven, which, by the way, doesn't have the biblical precedent. So once again, in the worship wars, you can have a long, endless discussions about the proper posture. But a simple opening of hands can be very meaningful. It helps your mind to realize, actually, this service might not be the exact copy of what's going on in the heavenly sanctuary, but reflects our little church here. But still, it's a tool of blessing that I am receiving something from God, even in this place and in this time. And it can be very meaningful. Rita? I was just wondering if it was to do with how people in that culture use their hands. I know in my experience, when on holiday in Mediterranean places, I know in Mediterranean people that they're very expressive with their hands, not like English people. They don't do things with their hands. And if you're watching from afar, you can get some idea of what is going on by what is happening with their hands. And it may be threatening. It may be a way they want to embrace. It's about wanting for them to do something to you or protecting yourself from them, making a point. And I was wondering if by having a posture of uplifted hands, you're showing that I'm no threat to anybody. And I'd also maybe that I don't want to be disturbed by you because I'm in communication with God. Thank you, Rita. That's very important and meaningful. You show I don't carry a sword. I am not a threat to you. I'm not going to backstab you. It's a posture of surrender. I have nothing to harm you with. Michael? Yeah, there's early depictions of Christians They're in the catacombs in Rome and other places where Christians had their hands raised, not clasped together as a form of prayer. And that the clasping of the hands together was a sign that you were not armed. You didn't carry a knife or a sword in your hand, which were the common weapons at the time. But it's carried over so that holding your hands like this or clasping like this has now become a sign of humility and prayer. Yes. Raising of hands in the worship service nowadays. When is it that you see it? Let me ask you differently. At the baptismal service, have you ever wondered why does the pastor who is baptizing the new convert, and I'm talking about the baptism of adults here, creates a roof over the head of the person who is baptized? Have you ever wondered why do they do it? It's not sunshine, it's not rain there, but why do they create a little roof with their hand over the head of the one who is baptized. I mean, it's the remnants of the biblical laying on hands. But we always leave some space. We lay on hands, but we don't touch them. We leave some space. And in the text in Timothy, we had something about laying of hands. And the New Testament says that you receive the Holy Spirit by laying of hands. And we want to believe because the baptism is by immersion on the confession of your faith that by confessing your faith, you acknowledge God as your father, and he acknowledges you as his daughter or son, and you receive the Holy Spirit. And so that's the form of laying of hands. 
Now, where do you see the hands in action in the context of the worship? It occurred to me that the only time that I've ever seen it, as far as I recall, is in some sort of benediction. That's right, in the blessings. And so the context here is the Aaronic priestly blessing. And when the psalmist says, when those who are in the sanctuary lift their hands, it's a way of saying, let the blessings flow from the sanctuary to all of territory of Israel, to all the 12 tribes, from Dan to Beersheba, and of course, in the context of the story, and to all the nations until the last places of the earth, because God of Israel is not a local deity, is the God of the whole earth. And so, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord means, may it rain on me from the blessings which are pronounced there tonight in the sanctuary, when may I benefit from the things which are going there at the headquarters. Do we need that today? Can you see the meaning in that? Remember, Israelites worship an invisible God. There is no depiction of him, no stature. That's why in the mystery religions, when you are initiated, you are told the mystery, and then you know what's the picture in the most holy place that nobody else knows, only the initiated know. That's what the mystery religions mean in the first century. And that's why after four years of surrounding Jerusalem, from 66 to 70, when finally the Romans get in, they are curious to see, okay, what's in the most holy place? Let's bring this God, which is worshipped here in this temple, back to Rome, to Pantheon. Remember, if you have ever been to Rome, there is this building preserved where they had the collection, exposition of all the gods from different parts of the Roman Empire that they brought back. But when the Israelite soldiers get finally to the most holy place, what do they discover? Empty room. Nothing there. And they get so upset. So is this for what we fought for for four years and died? And what do we bring back to the headquarters now to prove that we have been successful? And of course, they burn the place down and destroy it completely because of this frustration that they have nothing to bring back. Because Israelites worship an invisible God. And so how do you reflect the presence and the blessings of God that emanate from the sanctuary to you? There in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in the Israel territory, and even the worldwide perspective, the global perspective that, remember, that's why God brought them out of Egypt, so that the other nations learn. They become the model, a new type of community, where you don't exploit the slaves, but you bring blessings. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so these blessings create circles spreading, like when you throw a stone into the water. Those concentric circles go around. That's the picture here. Sean? Not wanting to diminish the ritual of what we're reading about here in terms of worship and the way we express ourselves, but it seems a bit deterministic, if not limiting, for us to follow ancient biblical patterns that we read about where certain groups of people at certain times did certain things which have become ritualistic and perhaps can fall into a place of devoid of meaning with respect to the current expression of that. I have experienced this many, many times in observation of other people, which has helped to guard me against falling into a situation where I am simply doing things by rote, whether being comfortable with an expression or uncomfortable. And quite frankly, there are many instances where I can feel palpably, if not my own discomfort, but the discomfort of other congregants 
who are watching people express themselves in ways that are not familiar to them and or lead them to a certain amount of discomfort, which quite frankly, must be quite a distraction from their own worship at the moment. So I'm curious to know why we are even talking about lifting hands. Why are we not talking about the ways that we find it important on an individual, but also a collective basis to express ourselves in worship? I'm not sure that any of this stuff is significant to God. I'm not sure that he's looking down or wherever he's looking from you know, he's saying, hey, if you don't lift your hands, hey, if you don't kneel, as has been mentioned before, but the thought of carrying forward ancient ritual and trying to fit into a modern expression seems a little bit difficult for me to grasp. So can, can you apply it or suggest the way to redeem it? My way of doing that would be to suggest to be very personal with God and understand what it is he wants you to express in your own worship and not be disquieted or discomforted in the company of others who are led to do other forms of expression and develop certain rituals in their own sure sure and this is what jesus has in mind when he says and when you pray to god you go into your place close the door behind you so that you are not judged or evaluated by your physical personal individual intimate expressions because what is acceptable between you and god might not be acceptable to someone else but how would what you just mentioned be applied in a context of a local church because that's the place where we can bring in new forms or let's start with defining ritualism you mentioned the word there in your comment so ritual is sean can you help us can sure try from my own experience having pastored local small congregations where in my initial attempts to expand the importance of worship by bringing a suggested update, I suggested to forego the typical pew pattern and arrange pews a little differently so that there could be a little bit more sense of intimacy in the worship. And among those few congregants in a small church, they about threw me out of my ear. The suggestions that have stemmed from that some years ago now, or the conclusions that I've come to, is that I want to be able to get to know the people that I am leading and worshiping with and allow that relationship to define what's comfortable for them and incorporate that expression in a common worship setting, which in my case in Adventism has not led to much change at all. There is a real sense of security that I've identified associated with how we do worship, quote unquote, in a public setting. So if I were to suggest to you the ideas that I have about how to make it more up to date and common for the generations that we want to see retained in our midst, I would find a certain age group in my church to check that off the list immediately. I would also, among some of those suggestions, find that the young generation would be standing off at the side with a rather skeptical point of inquiry going, okay, how much are they going to move? How much are they going to see my relevance in their midst as an important factor? So rather than going through a list of things that I would suggest to do, Daniel, I would simply say that it has been a point of difficulty and roadblock, which is why I have fallen back onto let everyone express for themselves their own way of worshiping without judgment.
Yes, sure, sure. And thank you for your comments. Yes, staring at the back of the head of people sitting in front of you is not the most conducive to engaged worship. And so something that we inherited from medieval times, if it's blindly or mindlessly followed, it can be a hindrance to worship. But let's go back to what we mentioned. Ritual is a certain procedure. Okay, Shaking of hands is a ritual. Giving a kiss is a ritual. Because you do certain things that express certain reality. Remember shaking hands, showing I don't have a sword. That's why you shake your right hand. So I'm not going to backstab you. It's a ritual that it's an offer of friendship. That's why Jesus says to Judas, how come that you are kissing me a sign of intimate closeness when you are using it as a form of betrayal? There is a disconnect between the ritual and the meaning. Now, ritualism is when a ritual is followed because magically it conveys something. We need to do this ritual, because if we don't, then we don't have the benefits. Now, the problem is that there is no benefit in the ritual unless you have a magical medieval thinking. They don't work on their own. They convey a deeper meaning, but if the meaning is not there, if the meaning is not understood or misunderstood, at the TED building, we have the statue of three angels, a very artistic presentation. And one of the angels is raising a finger. Now, if you look from certain angle, the people of St. Albans are very puzzled. Why is the angel showing them a finger? Because in 21st century context, the European culture, it can be a source of misunderstanding rather than a source of communication that here is a church headquarters that stands up for something. Actually, we have a small explanatory note saying that these are the three angels from Revelation 14, and they are supposed to convey the warning that goes to the whole world, etc. Because in a secular culture, where we are, people are wondering, what is this? <laughs> what have we done that we deserve this? So, and a local church or a small group, house church, remember, that's how the church was in the New Testament, is the best place to experiment with these things. Like Darla wrote in the chat, I wish there was more expression like this in my community. Yeah, because it's meaningful. It brings people to feel the presence of God and the closeness of God. And that's why the small context is the best place to explore these things. Because in a local church, whatever carries 51% flies. Now, of course, you have to be careful so you don't antagonize people. But if you agree that this is how you are going to pray, this is how you are going to sing, have you noticed when you come to the church, only insiders know what to do? So, for example, when we read the inspired words that God sent us, that is the Bible, usually we sit in our church tradition. In Lutheran tradition, you stand up because this is the word of God. You cannot just listen to the word of God sitting. Now, when we sing the words which we wrote for ourselves, we usually stand up. In other traditions, when we sing what we wrote ourselves, we sit. When you listen to what God wrote to us, you stand up, because that's how you show your respect. So unless you are an insider, you don't know in the worship service what you are supposed to do. You either have to watch around or you have to learn. And this is where the worship needs to have a predictable nature, because if you don't know anything what's going on, you are going to feel out of place. And yet worship needs to have also a new feature, because when I used to teach word and worship class for MA students at Newbold, I would take the students to an unnamed cathedral and a part of the worship service, they received the order of the service. And at the bottom, it said, 
the order of this worship service has not been changed and then there is a date in 16th century and you feel like mm, wait a minute either it did not mean much in 16th century or it cannot mean much in 21st century because if nothing in this worship service has changed in the last 400 years something is wrong here and so this is the context of the worship that we are talking about, that yes, you read in Psalm 134 that those servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord should lift up their heads to the holy place. And unless you put it in the context, it has no meaning to you at all. Even in the individualistic society, you ask, why do I need to be in the sanctuary and lift up my hands as a part of worship experience? But if you put it in the context of what it meant, then it's easier to come and see what it can mean today. Henry. I think that the problem is that we make Bible prescriptive in many elements. And we think that because the Bible says that we have to do it and we don't even use reason or apply the cultural context of this. We read lifting the hands. Okay, we must lift the hands. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter what the purpose is. It's just because it says it. And when we discuss this in our in a quarterly lesson, the, even the fact that it is considered a little nonsense for the post-enlightenment thinking makes a discriminatory position. That just because it is nonsensical to me, it has to be nonsensical for everybody else. But if somebody feels that this is the way for them to express their worship to God, let me do it. And I don't have to be in judgmental. So Sean was mentioning the very element that we are discussing these topics makes us feel like we are still trying to differentiate who is doing it right and who is doing it wrong, instead of allowing for the individuality of expression of worship. Other than that, we will need to start kissing at the end of sermon, right? Because Paul was talking about that blessed kiss at the end of the service. So yeah, it calls for a lot of discussion when we're talking about the ways to worship. Thank you. Karen? You often hear churches kind of confused about, oh, can we do this? Can we move and do this action or have this creative prayer? And most church services today that I go to are at least 90% verbal, the songs, the prayer, the sermon, the Bible reading, the announcements. And most people are not actually more verbally orientated if we look at the whole population. And there's very little visual content in this as a good PowerPoint or a very beautiful church and very little movement and action. But when God created worship services and gave them the sanctuary service and created the feasts and told his people how to celebrate. It's very multi-sensory. There was tastes, smells, things to hear, things to see um, that were all part of the very rich learning experience. And they still are today. We know these things are important. And yet somehow we struggle. We're stuck with something that came from the Middle Ages created, may I say, probably by theologians who love words, right, and didn't have kids. And so the service worked for them or for a certain context. But what do we need today? How do we worship today in ways that will engage all ages and learning styles and different kinds of ways so that we're not going to enjoy every single thing throughout a whole service, but we will have something that is meaningful and precious and inspiring to us as we participate in worship. That would be my dream. Excellent. And on that note, let's move to Psalm 33 and verse 3. And by the way, in 1 Peter 2.14, New Testament applies the Old Testament priesthood to all the believers. So those who were supposed to lift up their hands, you know, as the servants in the sanctuary, now that's all the believers in the New Testament. So 
all of us have a say in the way how the worship service is ordered, portrayed, and made meaningful. So there is no one way that fits all that was handed down from heaven, and it's for all the times, all the places, and all the cultures. But to make it meaningful to people in the New Testament, everybody needs to have a say. And as Karen said, it's not even the goal that you enjoy all the parts of the service, because we are all so different. But there needs to be something meaningful in that service for everybody. And that's why there needs to be a diversity and variety in that service. Enough said. Let's go with Psalm 33.3. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. All right. What I just said before was conveyed under number three. And now under number four, you have other biblical references for other places in Psalms where we are all invited to sing the Lord a new song. By the way, it's very interesting that in the context of Christian worship, people like old hymnals. So the older the song, the holier it is. Yet, repeatedly in the Psalms, you are invited or commanded, sing to the Lord a new song. Can you help me to understand what is the meaning, sing the Lord a new song? Karen? I think it's important for us to experience and express our faith and our journey and our relationship with God in a way that's meaningful to us where we are. Like the experience is continually new and continually changing when we're in a growing relationship with God. If we had a relationship where we had the same conversation all the time, people would soon wonder about us. And in a relationship, we like to hear new things and share new ideas and express ourselves in different ways. And I feel God probably enjoys that as well. And I think it's good for us to think about how we personally want to praise and express our songs to God in our own worship. And also, I think new songs help us to see different aspects of God, to relate to them differently, that they have more meaning in a different context. So I think new songs are really important. So once again, you need to have a balance between the old that is known and meaningful and provides a sense of continuity. And we are part of what God has been doing for centuries, millennia, and something new that gives you a new perspective, new reason to worship and praise God, because you see things that you haven't seen, as Aaron mentioned before. Rita? I don't know what the context of Psalm 33 was, the historical context, but to me, when it's saying, sing to him a new song, it suggests to me a transformation. There's been a transformation in you, so your song changes to reflect that. You've learned something that has made a difference to you and made a difference to how you see God and reminded me of Revelation 4, isn't it, where the elders are singing a particular song, and then once they see what Christ has done, they sing a new song. Yes, and you know what is the context, the antecedent reading? Sing a new song in the lights of what precedes. Remember, the salvation act in the Old Testament is? Exodus. The Exodus. And what happens in Exodus 15? Exodus 15.1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. And then comes the song for the next 17 verses until verse 18. And then let's read verse 20. So this is the song that Moses sings and the Israelites join in. And verse 20. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand. Uh-oh. Okay, let's read on. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. 
and verse 21. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. So not only they have a common song that everybody sings, but imagine women have their separate song. So there is a separate song for women because they have a perspective on things that they see from a different angle and they are free to express that. And let's go to Henry. The new song expression only reminds us that the salvation experience is a renewal. As Paul oftentimes says, the renewal of our hearts, of our minds. And there will be always a new expression. It is not intended that I need to renew the hymnal book, but that I have a new reason to worship God every day. As Aaron was mentioning earlier, it is going to be a continuous discovery all of the time, and that will be for eternity, and that will be the reason of a new song. And so oftentimes we want to stick with the traditional because this is what has been voted by the manual as the appropriate one, instead of making it a continuous experience of worship. Thank you. If you look under number five, how does the other parts of the Bible outside of the book of Psalms pick up the idea of the new song? You can read Isaiah for yourself, but let's go to Revelation 14.3. How is this picked up in the New Testament and especially in the book of Revelation? And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Okay, so in Revelation 5, 9, it's the four living creatures and the 24 elders who are singing the new song. And in Revelation 14, 3, it's the 144,000 who are singing a new song. So as I put in the study notes, so what is it about that that nobody could learn? Was it the lyrics? Was it the tune that was so difficult that nobody could pick it up? Was it the sense of dyslexia, some special educational needs? What does it mean, Darla? I really feel that it's the experience. Music is so personal, and so many times music has such an intimacy to it. And so they're singing an experience that no one else has had, and it flows from their hearts and their being. And I think it has to be inspired from God. You know, every once in a while we'll hear a song and we'll go, oh my goodness, the words and the melody of that song is just like, who could? And you just realize God is inspiring music all the time. So this new song is our present and new experiences. And I just wonder at this 144,000 that sing a song that no one else can sing because it comes out of their experience. Yes, thank you. And remember, 144,000 doesn't mean 144,000 pieces. Numbers mean quality of relationship. So it's the group of people. It's the multitude that no one could count. So there is something that we can sing. I was lost, but now I am found. So there is some experience that we share all as sinners. And there is some experience which is individual. And both need to be part of our worship. Iris? Well, this is the song of the redeemed. This is the song of those that have gone through great tribulation. And that is in contrast to the unfallen world. So the angels that have stood loyal on God's side, those who have not joined to buy into Satan's deceptive lies, they have seen from the outside what only those that are redeemed 
from the earth, from this planet of rebellion, has experienced firsthand. We have experienced sin and the bondage of sin and darkness and the deception. We've been lied to and deceived. And we have experienced the love of God in a way that no one else has experienced it. That is our song until eternity. This is the unique song. And in some ways, the unfallen world, it has significance for the unfallen world. But we are kind of the ones who have borne witness from within this experience of salvation in ways that the unfallen world has never experienced. And that will be our testimony for eternity. That's the song that we sing for eternity. So there are songs that angels can join with you. And there are songs that only you can sing because it's unique for us as fallen and redeemed beings. Yes, thank you. We have covered that. Uh, let's go to Psalm 15. Who may abide in your tabernacle? Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart who do not slander with their tongue and do no evil to their friends, nor take up a reproach against their neighbors, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath even to their hurt, who do not lend money at interest and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. Thank you. And let's move on to Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, for he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Thank you. Now, I don't know about you, but I have heard numerous sermons on these two psalms, and the question was always the question that the small children ask every time you take them for a trip. As soon as you load the car, are we there yet? And so... Most of these sermons said, who is going to ascend the hill of the Lord? Who is going to stand in his holy place? Who is going to abide in his sanctuary and dwell on his holy hill? Brothers and sisters, let's think about ourselves. Are we there yet? What's the purpose of these psalms in the context of worship? What is it that they try to convey? And what is it that a misunderstanding of these psalms can easily cause? Obviously, these psalms are supposed to do something positive. If you take them out of context, if you misapply them, you can end up in sadomasochistic depression that you are not there yet and there is no chance for you. Do you have a perfect heart? If you look at Psalm 24 or Psalm 101, the other ones that are quoted in the lesson, Psalm 24, 4. So help me, what are these psalms supposed to do? If you look under number 7, is this the case of catch-22? So you are supposed to have this, to look like this in order to come to the sanctuary. But if you are not like that, so where do you go first to become like this? Nancy? How does this relate 
to David's prayer, a lead in the Psalms where he says, create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. How do we relate that to this Psalm? Because I think this is also a Psalm of David, it says. Yes, yes. So how both can be true. Otherwise, you are forced with either or. And because both are inspired, you know, like Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, you need to have a model that takes both verses into consideration. So how do we see that these Psalms have their place in the collection and they convey something important about the worship experience? And I think Darla indicated that in her opening comment, that will be the key and the solution. And yet, probably all of us could testify that we have heard sermons based on these psalms, which were not very helpful, which were definitely not constructive. And as I said, were more on sadomasochistic end of spectrum and more detrimental to healthy spirituality and created feelings of guilt rather than bringing us closer to God. Liz, Liz Trapp. I think that these are talking about people who are coming to God. And it says that we have to have a pure heart, which to me is saying we need to be honest. If we are not honest, then we cannot be humble. If we aren't honest and humble with God, he cannot help us. The only way he can fix our broken nature and turn us into safe citizens for eternity is by us being humbly willing to listen to him. So anything less than humility and honesty before God is rebelliousness, and that isn't worship. So in order to worship God, we have to be honest with him to ourselves and be willing to listen. Thank That's you. true worship. Yeah, thank you. So you come to the sanctuary to realize your sinfulness, how far you are, how imperfect your heart, and you come to the sanctuary asking God to create a perfect, clean heart in you. So it all happens there. Yeah, Rita? These two sons, there are a couple of questions. Who can dwell in your sanctuary? Who can come to you? Genuine questions. And it seems that the response is highly ironic because nobody can achieve those states. And they leave it hanging. Almost to say, nobody achieves those states, but everybody can come to that place of worship. Yes, that's very important. So that's where you realize your state, and that's where you realize where the help comes from or the solution comes from. And that's why everybody's invited, everybody's welcome, although none of us are perfect. Henry? It also comes from the perspective of the human being. He is the one that knows what happens with a human being that still harvests all of these bad thoughts and actions and how dangerous it can be to others. So this is the aspiration of the human being, but it's not what God needs me to be in order to receive me. And this is exactly the demonstration that Jesus gave us, that he will receive any that we're looking to have these characteristics. You don't have to have them in order to go and be with him. Him. You need to be looking forward. So it is not a moment on time. It is the vector, as you may have mentioned in previous uh, class uh, sessions. It is the vector that I am aiming to. And this is what makes the end of who may live, which means at the end of the time, the end of the journey. But during the journey, having the aspiration, hoping that he that goes with us will help us to go and mature little by little because he is not giving up on us. Yes, thank you. And in this sense, let's connect this Tuesday with Thursday 
Darla mentioned in her opening comment that there needs to be a correspondence between the worship and the life. And this is what these Psalms, like 15 and 24, reminds us, that worship is not just a form, it's not just a ritual. There needs to be a correspondence between the worship and the transformation of life. None of us is perfect, but the worship is where we become like the one that we worship. We mentioned that ascribing to God, realizing who he is, and turning to God to see his greatness, his goodness, his glory, and to give him the right place that rightfully belongs to him. And that's where you are transformed. So let's go to Thursday lesson. And I would put this together also pedagogically for teaching those who are teachers after Tuesday should be the Thursday. And then comes the evangelistic outcome, which is Wednesday's lesson. But if you look under number nine, how do psalmists decry various misuses of worship, like in Psalm 40, Psalm 50, Psalm 51? So why does God say in Psalm 40, 50, 51, that he does not delight in sacrifices? Why did he give them to Israelites if he doesn't delight in them? So what is this supposed to mean? Let's read this 40, verse 6 to 8, so that people get the context. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Here I am. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. So this gives you a context. And of course, you know that Hebrews is going to take these very words and apply them to Jesus. Yet he brought the sacrifice. Now, if God does not delight in sacrifice, why does he tell them that three times per year, each of them has to appear before the face of the Lord and they cannot come with empty hands? They need to bring something. Henry. I think it's a common misunderstanding due to our human nature and to the lie that was spread by the enemy from the beginning. Because the sacrifice was never intended to be brought to God to achieve something on him. And this is what God is telling them. Yeah, you continue to misunderstand and you continue to bring this thinking that I need the sacrifice. This sacrifice was supposed to make a change on you. That's what I think is the explanation of this. Isaiah touches on that in the very beginning on Isaiah 1.11 when God is saying, don't bring me anymore. I am tired of these sacrifices and blood. Thank you. Liz, can you once again say for the benefits of others what you put in the chat? Trust in a ritual. Instead of the meaning of the ritual, always leads to a false sense of security. And God does not want us to trust in rituals. He wants us to trust in him. Amen. So it's an abuse of religion that instead of trusting in God, you trust in the ritual. In the previous lesson, we talked about the abuse of religion that instead of trusting God, you trust the place. That somehow Jerusalem, somehow Zion is holy and the place will do the trick. Remember, in the books of Samuel, it says that the Philistines are fighting the war and Israelites are losing, and they come with a brilliant idea. Let's take the box of the covenant into the war, and it will bring us victory. And instead of bringing them victory, it brought them defeat, and they lost. And God is teaching them, you have to rely on me, not on magical thinking. You cannot rely on the place. Jerusalem itself is not going to save you. Sacrifices are not going to save you. So religion can become, as Marx expressed it, an opium of mankind, that it takes you away from God rather than closer to God. I think God never wanted to have to use this imagery of, of sacrifice, of 
of slaughter. And unfortunately, I think over the centuries, we've come to see sacrifices only meaning death, whereas in the New Testament, certainly it means something different. It's about our lives. But when he instituted those services, they were a rabble of slaves who'd lived in a country where there were sacrifices. And I don't think they would have understood anything about God if they hadn't had something with which they were familiar. As we've said before, God had to be the same, but different. Same enough that they would be interested, but different enough to move them on in little steps. Excellent. Which shows you how God takes people where they are and leads them in small steps to where he wants them to be. Nancy? I imagine when Adam, after they chose to distrust God, and God told him he had to kill a lamb for the first time, and you think of it, the whole universe had not seen any death. And it is the God who sees every sparrow fall and told the story of the lost shepherd who found his sheep. It's the God who loves his creatures. But I can imagine Adam, like Graham would say, the first time he perhaps hit the lamb with a rock, it horrified him. And it probably didn't kill him. He had to do it several times. And he was horrified. It was awful. And Graham would say, good, may it always make you sick. May it always remind you of what sin does. It's about sin. We needed to remember how dangerous sin was. It was not at all to appease God. And of course, Lucifer, the devil, twists the truths. So now it became a ritual to put the wrong picture of God through the centuries that he had to be appeased. But it was to make us sick. And even you take that to the cross and Christ himself showed the horrible results of sin. Thank you. Michael? At the temple, there were money changers and people selling doves and other animals for sacrifice. And I'm sure a lot of the people who did that were worshipful of God. But Jesus was furious because undoubtedly the money changers were taking their cut and the selling of animals, whether it was a dove or something else, was a money-making process rather than worship of God. And it was a corruption of what was originally had a wonderful intention. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Michael. And it starts with a good intention. So let's help these pilgrims because you cannot bring your lamb from Beersheba to Jerusalem. It's not going to survive the journey and be blameless. It's going to be hurt and bruised. For those poor people, let's provide the dose for them. So it starts as a customer service, but ends up as a mafia that people cannot beat. And Jesus says, this doesn't represent who God is. Because we know that people discover that the lamb that did not pass the quality control because was not blameless enough, then gets resold to your neighbor and you recognize it because of these little things on the legs, etc. and signs. And you ask, so how much did you pay? And you compare how much you got for it. And suddenly here is a system that a common person cannot beat. It's a source of income for someone, as we said in the previous lesson. And they turn it into the den of robbers a place where they feel secure because they are helping the holy thing. But Jesus says this has nothing to do with who the Father is, what he is after. And this is a gross misrepresentation of the whole plan of salvation and what God wants. So thank you. Thank you, Michael. And let's now go back to Psalm 96. And let's read verses 1 to 3 and then verse 10. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. 
Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Say among the nations, the Lord is king. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So you can see, if you look under number eight, that it's not only the singing, it's not only the praising, it's not only bringing the gifts. Remember the idea that you should not come empty-handed. In other words, somebody else needs to be blessed by your religion. Remember Matthew 25? When have we seen you? For you, we would have done anything. And the question is, who else benefited from your religion? So when they come to Jerusalem, others must be blessed. They even need to take a portion of their estate and convert it into money and then buy things so that the poor the family, etc., are blessed. Have you heard about people damaged by religion because someone was so committed that the rest of the family was damaged by that level of commitment? And here God says, no, 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 you have to convert a portion of your income and buy goodies so that the whole family is blessed, so that the little ones are looking forward to that experience. And so praising, singing, bringing gifts, proclaiming God's goodness and greatness. There is the worship that we talked about, but here comes the evangelistic dimensions. Other nations need to be blessed as well. Other nations need to benefit from this. Can you see how this brings them back to Genesis 12? Abraham, through you, all the families, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. Can you see how this brings them back to the meaning of Exodus? Why did God bring them out of slavery? So that they form a counterculture community where they don't treat each other by slaving another human being, by blessing another human being. And these Psalms help them to realize and to remind them that you are to be the blessing to everybody else. All the tribes, all the nations are going to take advantage of your weakness. If you accumulated wealth, they are going to come and steal it. They are going to come and kill you. They want your territory. They want your gold. They want your women, your children, your harvest, etc. But you will be a different community. You will be a community that brings blessings to all other tribes, all other nations, to the whole earth. Religion cannot be an exclusivistic club. All right, let's conclude. Number 10, let's say worship is responding to all that God is with all that we are. In worship, you treasure God, you ponder his worth, and then you do something about it. You give him something that he is worth. And that's why emotional experience or ritualistic experience is not worship. Worship is responding to all that God is with all that we are. When we intentionally turn to God and we see new perspectives, new angles on his greatness, on his goodness, all that belongs to him, then we give him the place in our lives, individual and community, that rightly belongs to him. And that's the true worship. And that's the worship that never ends, that will go on for all eternity, and that you not only survive, but you enjoy because it's transforming you into who God is and into his image and achieving the purpose that God put into all of us when he created us in his image. And uh, it's our privilege, both in our individual lives and in the worshiping communities of connected people where we are, to create an environment like that where people are welcome, they want to come, and the transformation takes place.
So why are we here? If I ask in a typical church, why are we here? What's our mission? What am I going to hear? We are here to do evangelism. Sorry, no. According to the Bible, the first duty of all created beings is worship. Every time a human being meets God or even an angel in the Bible, they proskineo, they worship, they fall down. And God lifts them up and says, stand up, I want to talk to you like a man. I want you to have a meaningful relationship. The fact that you are bowed down, that you dropped like dead on your face, does not reflect the dynamic of our relationship, of what I'm after, what I want. I want to have a mutually enhancing, meaningful relationship that's transforming for you. So, yes, evangelism is important. Other nations need to hear but evangelism is always only a consequence, an overflow of the worship. You need a perspective on who God is. Everything flows from our image of God, who God is. And if you get a healthy image, you have a healthy and constructive worship. If you have a distorted image of who God is, then you need worship that step by step is transforming you into a better understanding and better forms and more meaningful forms of who God is and worship. And that is God's plan for us and the community because certain things cannot happen in one-on-one but can happen only in a community. By people we are hurt, by people we are healed and shaped. And that's why God sends you as a part of community so that we are healed, transformed, and the worship can be rendered in a more meaningful way. Let's pray. God, we cannot fathom who you are, but from the little that we understand, we can see how you created us in your image so that we can enjoy this relationship with you to the extent that we do not worship things, ourselves, positions, or whatever else, but that we see ourselves as part of the larger universe. We see who you are and what we can become. And thank you for the noble aspirations that you have for each one of us. In spite of the fact that we all have been damaged by sin, you see the value that each one of us has. And we carry your image as your daughters, as your sons. And we pray as each day we worship you and as we meet as a community, that it can contribute to that transformation. And we pray that also some other people might be blessed by this worship, by this transformation so that they can be attracted to your character and to who you are and what you want to achieve with all of us, not only on this planet, but the universe-wide. And we thank you for this priceless revelation. In Jesus' name, amen.